Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Since the beginning of the program in 2011, we've made a point of featuring women artists who began their careers in the 1980s and 1990s, who have made work of significance and who have so far been denied their full majority because the institutional and commercial art worlds were primarily focused on recognizing and elevating men. This week, I'm pleased to welcome to the program Judy Ledgerwood. Ledgerwood is included within 50 paintings at the Milwaukee Art Museum. The exhibition features paintings made in the last five years by 50 artists from around the world. It was curated by Margaret Andera and Michelle Grabner and is on view through June 23rd. You can also see Ledgerwood's work in Disguise the Limit, John Yao's collaborations at the University of Kentucky Art Museum in Lexington. It's there through June 1st. Ever since the 1980s, Ledgerwood's paintings have engaged transatlantic histories related to abstraction and decoration from a distinctive feminist point of view. Her work is in the collection of museums such as the Met in New York City, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the MCA Chicago. On the second segment, Robert Frank and Todd Webb Across America, 1955, arrives at the Addison Gallery of American Art in Massachusetts. But first, Judy Ledgerwood, after the break. Set through a queer lens, award-winning artist Wu Sang's new work combines silent film techniques with virtual reality to mine Herman Melville's 19th century novel. Part love story, part cautionary tale, the film highlights the powerful similarities between the book and our own trying times. Experience it at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, February 14th, 15th, and 16th, featuring music performed live by the Chicago Sinfonietta. Learn more at mcachicago.org. Fifty years ago, celebrated San Diego-based artist Eleanor Anton staged and photographed 100 boots on their cross-country trip from Solano Beach to New York City. A new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego includes the 51 postcards that document the boots' journey. Also on view is work by the collective My Barbarian, whose layered performances continue Anton's spirit of social critique and playfulness. Opening September 21st on view through February 2024. See Eleanor Anton and My Barbarian at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. This podcast is supported by Getty. Don't miss two photography shows considered among the 10 most memorable museum exhibitions of 2023 by the Los Angeles Times. On view at the Getty Center through February 18th is Arthur Tress, Rambles, Dreams, and Shadows. In the field of staged photography, Tress has been a trailblazer, directing his subjects in scenes inspired by his fantasies, daydreams, and nightmares. This is the first exhibition to chronicle his early career in the New York photography world. Also on view is Sheila Metzner from Life, which celebrates the artist's 30-year career and her unique photographic style that has left a mark on late 20th century photography in the areas of fashion and still life. Metzner's unique style became closely associated with 1980s fashion, beauty, and decorative arts trends. Enjoy these two photography shows and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. And we're back. Judy Ledgerwood, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's so good to be with you. Yummy yum. Your work in 50 Paintings in Milwaukee, I'm just going to say that again because it's fun. Yummy yum, yummy yum, includes a flower-like form that's been in your work for a heckin' long time. 
since at least 2004 or so. And it's a form you've used in different compositions and with different colors and in different media, such as in ceramic work, myolica. How did you come to that form? How did you settle on it? That's interesting because before that, there had been circles and squares in the work, and it felt, I don't know, limiting and too static. And initially, I put the circles on a diagonal to try to enliven the composition. So it was a really formal decision. And the moment I did that, and the moment someone in a studio visit called it a flower and I cringed and denied that it was a flower, I realized that the shape was really problematic. And the thing that makes it problematic is also the thing I think that makes it really powerful. So I returned to that shape over and over again because I, I think it has so much possibility for meaning. And I think all of those issues that initially made me cringe, like it's flower quality is also what makes it really strong. So I'm I'm pretty all in on this quatrefoil. How did the circles become a quatrefoil? The circles come in in, I don't know, like 2000-ish. We'll, we'll talk about kind of that transition a little later on about how the circles came in. But how did the circles go from being like a single circle, a single round thing to the quatrefoil form, which is kind of like four overlapping circles constructed from the outline of those overlapping circles? I just I just restack them on a diagonal instead of putting them in horizontal like a box like shape. I inverted it the I inverted the rectangle so that it became a diamond shape and then the the circles fit in there very easily and, and made and made it yes more dynamic but also made a flower and suddenly that pictorial issue threw everything into disarray in a good way. So it sounds like you weren't even remotely interested in things like the association of that form with, say, the traditional floral still life of centuries of painting? Not initially, no. Ah, but you became. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I've always been afraid that my work would be like become like a brand or something where you just kind of make the same things over and over again without examining them. And as I said, it problematized my practice in ways that have been really fruitful. So I, I continue to find out new things about the form and and find new ways to kind of stretch it or twist it or morph it into something else. But it's its ability to be both a flower and not, you know, to be a flower, to be architecture, to be a sign. Those things are all really interesting to me. And I think it has it opens up so much possibility for meaning that I did not, or I had ceased to find in the paintings that were more based on like horizontal and vertical lines, horizontal and vertical circles. It, it just opened up all kinds of new possibilities for what the paintings could mean. You mentioned a moment ago that the form emerged when you you kind of engaged putting circles on diagonals or, or limiting circles with diagonals. Yummy Yum is one of a number of paintings you made in recent years, actually ceramics, pots, if you will, in recent years, that also include an explicit diamond pattern, almost kind of like, not almost kind of like, exactly kind of like <laughs> the pattern associated with the Harlequin stock character of the Commedia dell'arte tradition that modernist artists repurposed in the 20th century. In the U.S. tradition, it's probably best known through Jasper Johns. What about that diamond pattern appeals to you? It's flatness and it's and the fact that it's parallel to the picture plane is primarily the thing that interests me. And also as a shape, it's vaginal and that's appealing. And 
I think it seems a little subversive because of the way it upends the stability of the picture plane. Especially when color is added. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it immediately adds tension to the image if, it's, if you're working with a rectilinear format. So it's, I feel like it's a really useful shape to have on my repertoire. It's also a form that allows you to do something that you've done since the 1980s, maybe wandered away from for a while, but in, in, in the more recent paintings, you're absolutely back to, and that is using and equally valuing every inch of the rectangle. It, it, it's, a, it's a geometry, if that's the word, that allows you to use everything if you choose to. Yeah, I, I think that um, I think it just makes the paintings more powerful. So I've been yeah, so I use the the surf the surface of the painting, and recently I'm doing this thing that's usually considered really vulgar or tasteless, which is to paint around the sides of the painting. And I started doing that because I realized that you don't always approach a painting frontally. Like often when you first see a painting, it's you know it's diagonally across the room, and the side of the painting, unless it's in a frame is part of what you see when you look at the painting and it seems like unclaimed real estate. So I'm, I'm taking it all. And Why I'm also, is that vulgar? I don't know. It's like, it's one of those things you learn in art school, you know, like only amateurs paint around the edges of their paintings. Really? I don't know. Name, name one famous painting or well-known painting that's highly regarded where it's, it's painted on the face and also on the sides of the structure. So historically I totally get it, but it, I think that in the last, especially in the last decade, it's become pretty common. Like yeah. when I look at recent painting, I see a lot of painters doing it. Maybe. I should be more aware. I mean, if other people are doing it, I should be more aware, but I can't think of any. I can think of people who make small paintings, you know, where the whole thing is an object. But my paintings are generally not small. One of the things that's interested me about your work over the last decade or 15, 17 years is it seems to have a relationship to the pattern and decoration tradition, but only with a wink. Like I don't, I suspect you're not hugely interested in P&D painting, but there's something there. Where does P&D sit for you and, and, or not? <laughs> well, it's interesting that you would describe it as a wink. I think the things that are pertinent to me about pattern and decoration is the the craft aspect, the the high low thing. You know, I feel like I've I wanted to be a painter, been an artist my whole life, and there's always been this divide in the way art is taught between crafting or you know other made things that are made in the fine art tradition. So I'm really aware of that. And I and I come from you know, I was born in southern Indiana. I come from a family of quilters. And so so this notion of making things or repurposing fabric in, into patterns that were decorative is certainly a part of my personal history. So I've been really aware of of women making things in the craft tradition and how they're evaluated and um, or not in the art world. So that, that part of P&D is really appealing to me. That said, it's really important to me that my paintings are made in paint, that other things in the world are not included in the in the process because because the the I guess the tradition that I'm most interested in address, addressing is painting. So all these other things can kind of fold into that vocabulary, but when it comes right down to it, I think for me it's important that it be 
painted and not that there's no there's no fabric, there's no actual stitching, there's no weaving. It's it's paint. So that- that's the thing about P and D that 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 does hit for me between your work and 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 P and D, and that is the materiality of paint. Yeah, you know Joyce Kosloff or Kim McConnell. The three dimensionality of of paint on a surface is probably the closest I can get between P and D and 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 your stuff. Which brings me to another thing that's been in the painting for a number of years, but wasn't there at the beginning, and that is drips. You. I don't want to say prioritized, but but the dripping of paint seems to have become more and more important in recent years and more and more a a compositional element even. Why dripping? Part of it is because of the way it, it it interrupts the time that's established in the pattern, that there's a thing happening in real time that's very different than the, the time that's made from the repetition in the pattern. Part of it is that it's a it's a, a kind of mark that I see, you could certainly fake it, but it's a it's a mark that happens in a a free and spontaneous way, and I think it really adds to the paintings. I like the way it signals the materiality of the paint. You know, its viscosity and it or its thickness, and and the materiality of paint is one of the things that I think is most important about what I do in my paintings. That the that the material kind of sits forward in terms of how you understand the work. They also bust up the grid of the diamond pattern yeah. in a way that winks at modernist tradition while going, eh, done with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I also think that there has to be some way to include drips in the, in the painting and in the painting process that doesn't always speak to Jackson Pollock. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's not that process. No, I, I, and actually, I hadn't even thought of Paul. I, oh, good. I, I'm not the world's biggest Pollock guy. And honestly, I'm going to get emails for this. They kind of bore me. But when I see drips moving vertically down a canvas or linen or whatever, to me, that doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with throwing cans of paint around. Yeah. Well, I think that's an important distinction to make. He painted his paintings flat on the ground. Mine are painted vertically. They're parallel to my body. And it is about the gravity of the material. Well, let's turn back the clock. In the 1980s, you made paintings that seemed interested in bridging nature and the heights of American abstraction, be it abex or color field work. Pictures that were often, I think, phenomenological and descended from Mark Rothko and, say, Albert Pinkham Ryder in a way that I think was not an unusual way of thinking in 1980, in the 1980s, even if maybe painters now don't think of those painters or those traditions together. All of those paintings, not all, but many of those paintings had this sense of, whoa, look what's washing over me, the viewer, as I am standing here in front of this painting. So I'm thinking of works such as Composition in Yellow and Gray from 87, which is at the MCA Chicago. It's very nature-y, very writer-esque. There's a little bit of, of Homer uh, at sea there. Or a picture such as Composition in Pink, Brown, and Violet from 92, which is like uh, Rothko from 1949, plus also like a little bit of a sunset. So it seems to me that back in those early years, you were really interested in finding shared ground between those two great American things, nature and, and mid-century abstraction. Is that a fair read? And, 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 and if it is, why were those two things that you wanted to address almost at the same time? That's a very fair read. And 
why did I want to do that? Because I felt like in both of those traditions, there was this search to try to describe the sublime. And I think in the late 80s, that seemed like a like a worthy kind of thing to explore. A lot of those paintings were really big, like wall-sized paintings, and their environmentalism was also an important part of them and how you experienced them. I think in the 80s, I was maybe that was the beginning of when art started to be shuttled around the world in image format. And I felt like I needed to make paintings that were uh, dependent on the theatrical experience between the viewer and the painting. And so part of it was the scale of the work in relation to the viewer's body and to architecture. And part of it was the materiality of the paintings, which was very subdued. They were really quiet. And to make paintings that were quiet and enormous in scale seemed like a good counterpoint to a lot of what happened in the 80s, which was much louder, more bombastic. The two traditions, those paintings in the late 80s and early 1990s, address are kind of heroic traditions, and you addressed those heroic traditions in ways that matched or, or tried to one-up that heroism. Were you interested in that sense of heroy bigness? I was interested in feminizing it. And the way that I felt that I was, that I consistently approached the feminizing was through color. So that painting that you mentioned at the MCA in Chicago, the composition gray and yellow or whatever, it's, those are colors that they're kind of landscapey, but not really. Like you might've seen them more in, in fashion or in hotel decor in the late eighties. And certainly the, the kind of um, sunset color painting that you mentioned Rothko in 1949. I certainly looked at a lot of those paintings. He was one of the few who used pink or orange or, you know, the kind of, I don't say off-brand colors, but, you know, it, it wasn't black or red or white. These were colors that were identifiable by their color name, and they were colors that you might see, again, in interior design or in fashion. And that was one way in which I felt that I could participate in the heroic tradition of painting, but also kind of add to it. I wouldn't even say undermine because I wasn't really trying to undermine it. I just wanted, I just love that stuff and wanted to participate. And it felt like a way that I could contribute things that hadn't been part of that canon before. And then you went almost quickly to choosing to not participate in it. By the late 1990s, you, you had, in, in a way I'll raise in a moment, you, you'd kind of chosen to move on from that. So why did you choose to move on from it? I felt like I could never get the kind of critical traction that I wanted for the work. Let me just, jump in there real quick. It's We were talking about those Rothko 49 paintings and how you were kind of looking at them and riffing on them in like 92. By 2000, in, in 2004, Pace in New York presented a huge show, big show with a good catalog on on just the year 1949 in Rothko's life. So maybe you weren't getting the critical traction you wanted in 92, but everybody caught up to you by 2004. <laughs> well, I should have just been more patient. <laughs> That was a big part of it. I think that there was a review where it was described as post-romantic abstract or post-romantic landscape painting. And that, that didn't seem quite right. And so it was partly the critical response. And it was also that I'd gotten a lot of support by a very prominent collecting couple in New York. And everyone wanted a painting just like theirs. I mean, maybe different size, maybe different color, but there was this constant like, well, could you paint one just like so-and-so's? And I just, 
again, it's that brand name thing. I felt like I couldn't be an artist and I certainly didn't want to be a factory worker where I just turned out like this product. So, and that happened, I don't know, like, yeah, in the early nineties. And so it took a while to rebuild my practice and I kind of stripped it down to the things that I felt had been the most important in what I had done or the most meaningful to me, which was color and scale and light. And it it took a while to kind of figure it out. There was a transitional period where the paintings looked like they were, it's where the circles came in. So I was interested in what happens in film. It's called rack focusing and it kind of image pixels into these circles of shape. And I thought, oh, well, that's the perfect shape for light. It's this circle. And the circle comes about when the light shines through an irregular opening. But, you know, I always tell this story about walking down the sidewalk and seeing patterns on the sidewalk and sun and shadow from trees. But even though the leaf shape is, you know, more geometric, the shape on the sidewalk would always be circles. And I was really interested in this this way in which this shape could be a distillation of, of light as well as this the shape itself seemed meaningful. You know, the circle has all these symbolisms that have to do with continuity and femininity. And, and so the circle in my work became this shape that represented the body in a way. Like very early on, they started to be weighted toward the bottom. And the, the mm-hmm. gesture of making them like really privileged the, the way the paint moved across the surface. You know, it was this like whoosh of paint. It wasn't, it wasn't like a circle and I filled it in. It was the whole circle was painted all at once. And yeah, that period lasted maybe from early nineties to yeah, right around early two thousands. Yeah. Like the mid aughts. Yeah. Let me jump in on a couple things there. I I think in the late eighties and early nineties, there were a number of women who were tackling heroic American landscape and related traditions. Your work, Sylvia Plymac Mangold, Sylvia Plymac Mangold comes to mind, and I, 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 I think that the curatorial and collector world had a gendered response to them, where that was women doing the dudes thing, and we want women to do something differently, not not what they want to do, and I think that's maybe mostly ended. I mean, I can't go to a museum these days without seeing a Sylvia Plymac Mangold out, and I love it. Uh, Sylvia Plymac Mangold is one of my all-time faves. As you look back on that period, do you think any of that might be true? I don't know. I mean, Sylvia Hmm. Sylvia Mangold is a an older generation, and I'm certainly aware of her work. You know, she showed at Rona Hoffman Gallery for a number of years. Yeah, I guess that in in my coterie, it would have been artists like Joan Nelson. Yeah, Philip Zwack. I don't know that it was a very gender discussion at that Hmm. point you mentioned circles um circles come just rushing in so as you just told the story circles did not come to you from painting it came from things outside of painting being like film and sidewalks are there paintings or 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 or, or painters using circles in paintings that might have caught your eye i mean i know you love early modernist painting there's that moment where i don't know if it's a moment but there's certainly a thing where like kind of the second group of cubists like Leger came in and said, okay, enough with the right angles. Leger comes in and says, I'm going to do that with some circles. Yeah. So where else the circles? <laughs> Anywhere in painting. <laughs> Al held. Oh, that's interesting. Because he held on to the right angles and other angles. 
Yeah, but it became, I don't know, like like either point of the visual language, the circle or the square. Other artists, other painters. I think the big the big moment of shift was a show you had at the Renaissance Society in like 98 or 99. And it's these square paintings, sometimes with circles covering the entire surface and sometimes with like rows of circles and then just like a little group off to the side of four circles. And when I look back at the paintings in that show, at least the digital versions of them, it feels like you were figuring out what to do with the new thing. It was such an important show. I wish I'd already figured it out at that point. At least experience <laughs> that I'd already figured it out. Uh, it seems like that that show happened at the moment that I was kind of putting that whole vocabulary together. So even within that show, there's a kind of elliptical shape that I call the seed shape or the lady shape. There's another shape that kind of is pointed at the top, but round on the sides. So it's a maybe a combination like seed slash circle shape. But it feels like in that body of work, because the palette was so restricted to just... Let, let, let me jump in. The palette is an, a, a pale, almost iridescent, silvery, purpley, minty, white. Yeah, totally different. Very restrained, but shouty in its like iridescence. Yeah, there, there, were, um, there was some metallic paint in some of those paintings. And there was, um, more importantly, there was interference blue. I don't know mm. if this, this is a hit for everyone, but there was a moment when interference pigments were new and they seemed so interesting because they because the pigment changes its color and value dependent on viewer position and ambient light. So the way in which this color could be multiple things at once or would encourage viewer movement to see the paintings was super interesting to me. Yeah, and I also felt that, you know, with color, there's this real... There's a kind of shorthand that occurs with color where people would describe those as white paintings when, of course, they're white, but there are many, many colors within yeah, those. Yeah. And I wanted to, I wanted to challenge people to, to really look, you know, to see what, you know, to try to see what, the, what was in front of them, basically, you know, to try to, to slow down the act of looking. And again, I think it's, it comes from that concern that I had early on in my work, which has to do with the first person relationship between the artwork and the viewer, that there's, that there's a different thing that happens in reproduction. It's not the artwork. It's, it's a reproduction of the artwork. And I think it's really easy to forget that the thing that you're looking at on your screen is not the work of art. That's the, you know, the, the semblance of the work of art, but it's not that thing. And I feel like the one thing the painting really has to offer is, a, is this direct confrontation between the artwork and the viewer. And I think that's so rewarding when you have that, you know, it's like with people, right? Like, you look great on screen, Tyler, but, you know, I'm sure that in person, I would have a very different, not a very different, I have a different sense of you. And there's that kind of ability to know things physically, like in your personal presence that I think is really valuable. And I try to get to that in lots of ways in the painting, but certainly color is one of the primary ways because people see it you know, one way initially, and then over time, you know, the rods and cones of your eyes see things more slowly and, and your ability to see develops over time. And I'm really interested in having that kind of time with the viewer. That's the second or third time you've mentioned responding against or in opposition to 
the presentation of images on a screen or in a book about wanting to do something that you have to be there 37 inches away and not scrolling by or paging through. Yeah. The other way you described white there really reminded me of Richard Diebenkorn's Ocean Parks, many of which are kind of a palish, have like a palish bottom or middle. And they're, they, they kind of read as white without being white because they're the buildup. They're the result of the buildup of many colors and many layers, sometimes scraped back, and then Diebenkorn building on top of again. And so while there's a whitish, grayish there, there's also, like you said, all those other like rods and cones things going on that when you're in front of them, in front of those paintings, you can find what was there before. And so I think, you know, I'm not, I don't think you were scraping paint off of those paintings in the early, in the late 90s, or early 2000s, but the effect maybe with the paint you were talking about ends up rewarding the viewer in, in the same way. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of scraping, but there's certainly always been layering of color. I think that often the under layer comes through more than you would initially think. So the next big pivot, and one of the fun things about your oeuvre is this continual advance, this continual kicking the can down the road, the continual search for the next thing. The next pivot, and in many ways, a pivot that I think marked the beginning of what you've been doing for the last 20 years, was a series of works you made for a 2002 show in Los Angeles, which I think was the first time I saw your work in person. One of those works, I'm afraid I don't know the title of it, is a picture with four big verticals, kind of like movie screen proportions, four big verticals, silver on the far left, then white, light blue, and black. A picture that seems 100%, 99.9%, like your address of Matisse's Great Bathers by a River at the Art Institute of Chicago. A painting which features similar proportions, also has verticals. Actually, the palettes are pretty darn close. I mean, you're not using green, Matisse did, but otherwise the palettes are pretty much there. Did that Matisse open something up for you? And if so, why then? I don't know how I could possibly track when the Matisse painting Bathers by a River became so, say, indexical to what I do. But I do remember that exhibition, which was post-Renaissance Society, working with Brian Butler at 1301. He said that what he thought was, in many ways, the most powerful about the Renaissance Society show was its site specificity. And we had talked a little bit about the different quality of light in Chicago and L.A. And I had done shows in L.A. before 2002. And I'd had this experience where I made the paintings in the studio and then I sent them to LA and they just didn't sing the way I thought they should. And it had a lot to do with the quality of light in the paintings. You know, it's just, yeah, uh, things that look really brilliant in Chicago's kind of silvery light did not look the same in LA. So I spent some time out there, you know, just trying to get a handle on how it was different. So the, for me, the color palette came out of this quality of light that I thought I was West Coast. And I listened to a lot of West Coast jazz because I felt like I needed, I needed to open up some space in the paintings. And a lot of, like, a lot of what I got from like artists like Stan Getz, for instance, is that there's the space in between the notes. And for me, that'd be the space in between like some shape or something that's like these fields in between. So there was that structural thing that I, f I found through music and, and the quality of light, which, which I was trying to get to had to do something had to do with California. So that, yeah, that blue and black and white and silver color palette for me had to do with 
like placemaking. Those colors are all in Bathers by the River. And the organization, the vertical organization of that painting is almost a strikingly direct crib from Bathers by a River. Are you kind of saying you weren't conscious of any of that at the time? No, I'm, I'm saying that the, that the structure of Bathers by a River is such a, uh, a formative part of my vocabulary that that, uh, you know, that, 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 that was, that's been, that's there and has been there for a long time and has, it has everything to do with how you break the rectangle, you know, like from left to right on top to bottom and what forms are parallel to the edges of the format. It is interesting what you say about the light, especially because for me, and I don't know if this is only for me or if this is in the literature and other people have thought about it too. I kind of always think of Bathers by the Turtle as being a painting of night. Not sure I can explain that. It's the figures are grayish black, mostly. There's that big black, vertical in the middle of bathers by a river and it just feels like a painting of night to me kind of like matisse upturning the bathers tradition which is usually you know sun at the height of the sky and and when you talked about the la light i think of um you know there's a really famous essay lawrence weschler ren weschler wrote in the new yorker i think in the late 80s early 90s about moving to la and how the light in la which of course was created by (laughs) the sun bouncing off of smog particles I mean, this was peak L.A. smog (laughs) in the 80s and 90s. And so when I hear you talking about the light in L.A. as being different and suffusing, I think about that and how it's very much in the left-hand side of that. this painting of yours we're talking about, which, again, I'm sorry, what's the title of it? Do you know the title of it? Is there a title of it? I'm trying to remember. I should have known this, but I don't. (laughs) I couldn't find it. Yeah, there was a painting called Fat Track, which ended up at L.A. Mocha. And then the painting that I think you're talking about, God, I want to look so bad through my files to see what the title is because it had a really great title. There's, um, a, there's another painting in that show called Blue Sugar that is also related to the Matisse in yeah. Chicago. And that yeah. one does have green in it. Yeah, that's the title, Blue Sugar. So then that painting, what was it called? <laughs> it was really important too because I, it was like one of those paintings <laughs> that I never, it took me years to get back to it because it was so reductive. It was like four vertical bands. It was like there's a silver and white, there's the, there's like a dark, almost black section. God, I all of these paintings, not all of them, many of these paintings in that show had these these black band sections that were really essential, but challenging and like a hard thing to paint around just because a black square rectangle within a painting is has such gravity. The other the other thing about this painting that neither of us can, can think of or know the name of, maybe maybe by the time this show airs, I'll have figured it out, is it seems that that diamond form comes in with that painting. Yes. I think that might have been there before that, but in that painting, it's it's definitely like the it's part of the vocabulary. It's like the diamond shape, the square, and there were still circles or like half circles in those paintings. So this painting with the four bands that I initially started us down this path on does not have circles in it, but the others, almost all of the others in this show, you're bringing circles and half circles in. It, it's 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 like seeing something happening in real time almost. That whole show from 2002 revolved around that painting. There's a painting you made in that show called Fast Track that joins those verticals with circles, a painting that kind of bridges Matisse's bather with a river and in the context of L.A., like John McCracken and Bob Irwin. Do you think the explorations and and, and things you advanced in that show stayed with you for the next 20 years? Because I think I do, but I'm not sure you do. No, I think they absolutely stayed with me. It's like the vocabulary comes together in that painting, and then it gets kind of taken apart and 
put back together multiple times to the next. I mean, you get the painting behind me. It's yes. it's it's sort of the same, but no. Once you found the vertical bands, it was like, oh, I can find more here. Yeah, a way of organizing the horizontal rectangle in ways that really, you know, the, the almost infinite in, in the ways you could break up that rectangle once you found a path to doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The other thing that really happens after that moment in Ot 2 is subtlety leaves the work and fast, and there is assaultive color. There is the, the circles get bigger, the quatrefoil comes in, everything gets bigger, everything gets louder, everything gets brighter. How and why did that happen then? I think the simple answer is that in 2002, I recovered from cancer, and there's, um, you know, there was this moment where I was trying to make really quiet paintings and all that changed when I survived a mortal illness. It's like your sense of time changes in the world and your sense of where you are in it. I just felt like the, the work needed to be more aggressive and, and I wanted it to be more challenging. You know, I think that when the color plays nice, I think people are much more accepting in a way of what they're looking at. And I wanted, I wanted to throw all those questions of like taste into question. And I think sometimes that happens with a paint application, but often happens with color. The, the color is just ridiculously loud and bright. Do you remember thinking through sources for the color, whether, whether that, that's at a paint store or in popular culture, Lord knows what else? Yeah. I mean, things became really came down to the quality of the paint. You know, there are companies that make their own, like Williamsburg and Gamblin. And then there was a moment where I started making my own paint, um, in particular fluorescent color, which there's not a good fluorescent oil paint. There's this paint that's made by Holbein that's called Duo, that's water-soluble, or you can use it with oil, but it's um, like a lot of fluorescent color. It's not very stable. And so there was this moment where I was making my own fluorescent pigments or trying to make my own because I needed them to be super bright. And then there's all the, then there's all the stuff that fluorescent pigment represents, you know, in terms of social unrest and all of that, that, that also seemed something to, to kind of put back into the work. You know, I don't have it in my notes, but it's, it's a little after this, you begin to make three-dimensional things such as ceramic work. Why did you, why was that next? It's so funny. I wish I could say something intellectually here, but it really came out of lived experience. Going through chemotherapy, I was just too ill to make paintings on the scale at which I made them. So that period of time, I stripped all the color out of the work. I only made black and white paintings for that period of time. A lot of work on paper to kind of like examine the vocabulary. And the ceramic work came about because a friend who worked in the neighborhood had a ceramic studio in her backyard. And I was hanging out in her studio while she worked. And I said, I said, oh, Nancy, this looks like it would be so much fun. And she said, oh, yeah, you'd really like it. You should try ceramics. And of course, you know, she taught me how to hand build and they were pretty bad. And I realized that what I, <laughs> what I wanted to do was like, you know, not necessarily like the building part wasn't so interesting to me, but the, the relationship of the pattern to the form was super interesting to me. And also this vessel form, because it's so loaded, you know, it's, yeah. it, it represents the body, it represents in particular the female body, like all the, all the names that describe vessels, the neck, the foot, the body, all these things seemed 
worth exploring. And also the kind of, I won't say marginal status of ceramics, but ceramics, the way ceramics are evaluated alongside painting, certainly, like they were not seen as equivalent in any way. And that was interesting to me. You know, like, why is it that one form or mode of making is more important than another? So in 2002, 2003, I made these collaborations with my neighbor, Nancy Gardner. And then, you know, eventually she got busy with her own work and we would do like projects once in a while when she had time. But my, I've always been interested in, in ceramics. Like the material quality is really attractive to me. You know, it has something to do with its basic elementalness. Yeah, eventually I had an opportunity to make work in Germany at Nymphenburg because a class that I was contracted to teach under-enrolled and so they canceled it. So I was in Munich for a week with nothing to do really. And my gallerist introduced me to to Nymphenburg, the atelier, and I met this incredible person who was from Louisville, Kentucky, Ingrid Harding. And she encouraged me to come back and learn about what they could do at this atelier, which was completely different than working with my neighbor. You know, they build on a wheel. And that was the beginning of a really fruitful relationship with this, this atelier in Munich. So over the years, I've continued to make ceramics whenever I can, but I don't. I don't have a, a kiln and I'm not very good at hand building and I'm not necessarily interested in it. I'm interested in, you know, like showing someone a sketch of the shape that I'd like and having them produce something for me. Interesting that you turn towards ceramics after you started showing in L.A., California being the land of Arneson and Volkos and Ken Price and where artists had made some of the arguments you just made going back to the 50s. Yeah. Male artists, figurative artists. I feel like, you know, I think the thing that maybe distinguishes my ceramics from a lot of other ceramics that are produced now is that they really directly address the decorative arts tradition. Big time. Yeah. And I think that's that's where the problem lies and that's where I'm that's where I'm directing my efforts. Very French. That's me so French. <laughs> <laughs> was it a natural or was it always that you were going to migrate the quatrefoils and the diamonds into the ceramic works? Or did you think about other ways and other things? Or was there a unity between the painting and ceramics that you were after? I think I thought of other things, but there wasn't anything else that delivered in the same way that the quatrefoil does. I wasn't necessarily looking for, you know, equivalency between the ceramic work and the paintings. I guess I think of them as parallel investigations. I mean, part of I mean, the other thing that's really interesting to me about the ceramics is the three-dimensionality. You know, I'm interested in, in the painting. I talked a little bit about the approach to painting yeah. and necessarily always being frontal. With ceramics, it almost never is like purely frontal. You know, you see it from an angle. You see it from above. You might see it from below. And um, the way in which viewer position changes when you look at something three-dimensional is super interesting to me because there are ways in which you know it doesn't have to be the same from side to side and i i feel like i often change the pattern or the color or change something about the object so that there are things to discover when you move all the way around it because again this encouraging a, a relationship with the object that's kind of in real human time is really important to me i feel like that's the way in which the work can deliver in ways that other kinds of artwork that does different things through screens can't you know there's very matissean that that was that was really important to him 
I want to wrap up by kind of going back to where we started with Yum Yum from uh, 2021 in Milwaukee. So in recent years, in addition to the quatrefoil form, you have added or included a dot in the middle, making the quatrefoil form read maximally like a flower. That wasn't always there when you used the quatrefoil form. No, it wasn't. It seemed like that little bit of real estate in between is just like the... <laughs> It's like the cherry on top of someday in a way, you know, it's so, it becomes so compressed in there. And it's so, to my mind, so sexualized that putting another element that's either materially strong or strong in terms of a color just kind of brings it all home for me. It's really hard to, I don't know. I mean, I'm working on something now that has a thing going on in the middle of the quatrefoil and parts of the painting, but not anything special in other parts and somehow it just feels lacking but Mm. i feel in this quandary like i can't i can't continue to do the same thing over and over again so i haven't figured out what that other way is of activating that area in between but there's something there and i think it seems yeah something about the kind of one-to-one relationship between the flat shape of the quatrefoil and the viewer too that seems like this material thing that that kind of zeroes in to the center is important, but I don't know why yet, and I don't obviously can't really articulate it very well yet either. But there's something that feels it needs further development. Given that you started using the quatrefoil without feeling the painterly need to fill something in in the middle, do you remember resisting doing that? Do you remember a moment when suddenly it became possible or necessary to add something in the middle? It seems like a really big decision, I think, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think my response was kind of like it was initially with uh, quatrefoil. You know, the, the first time I had a studio visit with someone and they referred to it as a flower, I was like, oh, no, that's not a flower. That's <laughs> oh. not a flower because it was so <laughs> problematic. And I think the same thing happens with putting a, a center. I mean, it definitely makes it more like a flower than it does, say, a vagina. But... So, uh, yeah, so I, I resisted it for a long time, but there's something about like just going for it that, that makes it more problematic, but also, again, I come back to this idea of it being powerful in some way. Like it's, it does something in addition to that. I'm, I'm not sure what that something is, but it's, it seems important. It does more than without it. Judy Ledgerwood. Thank you. Thanks so much for the conversation. I really appreciated it. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the West Coast premiere of Only the Young, Experimental Art in Korea, 1960s through 1970s. On view from February 11th through May 12th, this exhibition gives unprecedented insight into a vibrant moment after the Korean War when Korean artists rebelled against artistic limits, embracing bold and provocative practices. For more information on the exhibition and accompanying programs, visit hammer.ucla.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Kehinda Wiley, An Archaeology of Silence. This new body of work from Kehinda Wiley, one of the world's most celebrated contemporary artists, is on view in Houston for the first time. Through his large-scale paintings and sculptures, he confronts the silence surrounding systemic violence against black and brown people. He uses the visual language of the fallen figure, with reference to Western European historical art and iconic portrayals of heroes, martyrs, and saints. In the artist's words, quote, 
the new portraits depict young black men and women in position of vulnerability that tell a story of survival and resilience, revealing the beauty that can emerge from the horrific. This exhibition is on view through May 27th, 2024 at the MFAH. Visit mfah.org slash Wiley to learn more. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents Krissa in New York through March 10th, 2024. The show features the artist's rarely seen neon sculptures, as well as plaster, marble, and cast metal pieces, and works on canvas and paper. Krissa was a leader within avant-garde circles during her years in New York and was one of the first to incorporate neon into her practice. Co-organized by the Manil Collection and Dia Art Foundation, Krissa and New York is the first major survey of the artist's work in the United States in more than 50 years. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. Welcome back. Next up, Lisa Volpe, the curator of Robert Frank and Todd Webb, Across America, 1955, which opens at the Addison Gallery of American Art in Andover, Massachusetts, this weekend. This conversation was taped when the exhibition debuted at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston in 2023. The exhibition presents work the famed Frank and the much less well-known Webb made as they traveled the United States on Guggenheim Fellowships in 1955. It's on view in Massachusetts through July 31st. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by the MFAH in association with Yale University Press. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about $25 to $45. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. Lisa Volpe, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me again. I love chatting with you. The 1955 trip that Robert Frank funded with a Guggenheim Foundation fellowship and traveled across the United States, resulting in the landmark book, The Americans, is super duper famous. Todd Webb got the same grant that year and made his version of the same trip. Webb was certainly no unknown in 1955. His pals included Alfred Stieglitz and Harry Callahan and Walker Evans, and he will stay with Georgia O'Keeffe. So why has his trip and his work fallen out of, out of our memory? Well, there's a few reasons for this. One is a very practical reason. Webb wasn't able to publish in the same way that Frank was. Frank had a publisher lined up in France before he even left for his Guggenheim trip. And so it was always a given that this work would get out in the world. Webb did not have the same publishing connections. And so after he returned, he was trying to find a publisher. He didn't quite know what he was doing. He hired a literary agent that kind of, you know, upset uh, some publishers and then they backed out. And at a certain point, he just kind of said to himself, maybe this isn't the right Thing for me, and he moved on to his next project. And then in the mid 1970s, Webb and Frank actually ended up selling work to the same collective of dealers and lawyers. And Webb's work just kind of went into a trunk and went to an Oakland basement eventually, and he was never really paid for it. Frank's work, they kind of bought up all that was left of the Americans kind of floating around his dark room and also his copyright. Frank fought for years in, to get all of that back under his control. So in this 
really critical moment, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, when histories of photography are being established, not only in books, but also in schools, universities, classes are being taught. When the history is being written at that very critical moment, Webb's work is entirely absent. You can't find it. And so he ends up being left out of the conversation. Revisionism forever, right? Yes. You write in your catalog essay here that, quote, photography was not only a popular product, it had an outsized role in creating and maintaining mid-century ideologies. Art historians do not always argue for art's impact on the United States or the idea of the American nation or the construction of American memory. So sentences like that warm my nerdy heart. Were Webb and or Frank concerned with with, with such, which which with creating and, and forming and maintaining ideologies? And if so, how did they address it in their work or even in their Goog applications? Um, well, we must be the same kind of nerd because uh, this is kind of what interests me about photography and American photography so much. You know, our comp- our country was kind of being co-produced with photography as it developed. So um, I always ask myself what these photographs are an agent of what they are trying to promote, whether that's pure artistry or something else. And in 1955, we have this like gung-ho American culture, post-war, consumerism, everything's wonderful. And we have photo magazines like Look and especially Life magazine circulating to almost a quarter of the American population. And really through photography, selling this ideology of America, that it's about small town life and these core values and everything's lovely. But both Webb and Frank didn't really believe that and didn't really believe in that type of photography, that kind of humanistic very pointed, very promotional photography. They really wanted to make art. They wanted to make it in series. They believed that you could only tell a story through multiple images, not these kind of quick summational images that life really trafficked in. And so in Facing Life magazine, and they both write specifically about life, that's what they positioned their Guggenheim grants against thinking about what are the complexities of America? What is our past? That was what Webb was interested in, how the past influenced the present. And Frank was more interested in the present and how it was going to spread to other countries in the future. So they really wanted to uncover the truth, not the ideology. They wanted the truth rather than the myth. And the idea of myth becomes a big theme in this exhibition. To be sure, Webb in particular had a complicated relationship with Life magazine. It is Life. He strikes a deal before his trip whereby Life will provide for, pay for the processing of his film and such. So there were kind of like around the corner compromises, if you will. One of the things that jumps out of the catalog for this show is that your fascinated by the images that Frank and and Webb made that were similar, or even like pictures that were of extremely similar 
subjects and you present them in ways that muse on why Frank and Webb were attracted to some similar things. Do you have a particular favorite or three of them doing the same thing differently? Well, this might, again, show that I'm kind of an art history nerd, but we always learn so much from comparisons, right? It's how art history works, that we put two images side by side and see what emerges. And I think in the case of these photographers, we think we know Frank so well, but putting next to it a similar image taken at the exact same time by a different photographer highlights what they're both thinking what they're both looking at, but also really makes clear the differences between them. And I think in the case of Frank, especially, it clarifies or clears out some of those myths we have about him and really show the truth, the complex truth behind the work. And Webb is a revelation that allows us to do that. So a specific example, I think, is probably the two bars that we look at. Both men, you know, took a lot of photographs in bars and restaurants, but there's one pair. Webb's is a bar in Dodge City, Kansas, and Frank's is a bar in Gallup, New Mexico. And just a quick look at these, you would think it's the same bar. It's the same type of lighting kind of hanging from the ceiling and everything's dim and these men are all outfitted in cowboy hats and, you know, jeans and workwear. But beyond that similarity, you start to clue into the differences. And the differences say so much about the photographers, about their methods, about their styles and about their personalities. So where Frank's is that shot from the hip, tilted composition, kind of dramatic, you feel that singular quick moment in time and how he had to rush to get out of the bar because he was a little scared of these guys. You just see it so clearly in contrast to Webb's very static fixed composition, really well thought out how he was arranging everything within the frame. But also you clue into Webb's humor and how he was kind of making the same critique as Frank all the time. But instead of being so direct about it, he did it kind of with a wink wink. And so these, you know, guys, these tough guys at the bar have a bubblegum machine on top of the bar, which is just hilarious. You know, thinking about these tough guys. None of them are young either. No. <laughs> That web is great for a bunch of reasons, and it's a great example of Webb's sense of humor and how I think that his pictorial sense of humor really sets him apart from Frank. So not only is there the bubblegum machine on the bar, but under the bar, visible only to the viewer of the photograph, not to the guys sitting at a table, is a pallet of empty Coca-Cola bottles. Yeah. So these badass dudes have been sitting around drinking Coke, not, not you know, cores or whatever not the banquet beer. And then in the background or in the middle ground of the picture, we see the two signs for bathrooms. One says gents, one says ladies. And of course, the other joke, the very obvious joke in the picture is there are no women here. Right. Um, and and like, it's the kind of space where you feel like um, women have never been. This is a, a site of enforced dudeness. I found that as I went through the catalog, one of the biggest areas of overlap between the two and differences in approach is in how they examine European-American patriotism as regards to the United States. 
And you obviously noticed the same thing and perhaps most effectively consider it in the context of two pictures. The web is a picture of a rodeo in Lexington, Nebraska. And the Frank is the famous political rally Chicago picture in which a man is standing underneath red, white, and blue bunting playing a tuba that obscures his face. What might we understand here about what they each thought of and how they each presented patriotism? It's a perfect example. In thinking about the way images convey ideologies and what those ideologies of America are, of course, both photographers were attracted to these icons of America, these, these, you know, visual symbols of America. And it's the bar, it's the cowboy, it's the flag. And they both really loved photos with American flags. But this pairing in particular shows them both kind of thinking about the same thing that with repetition comes, you know, meaninglessness or that sometimes we hide behind these symbols or icons and really lose the true meaning of things. Yeah, there are probably like 30 American flags in the web photo and they are um, being held by horsemen on horseback going around in a circle. Yes. With Webb's 30 American flags, it's just ridiculous. It's like how many times do you have to say America, 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 America before it becomes meaningless? And then the crowd, there's barely a crowd there in the stands that you can see. So like, who is this pageant pageantry really for? It's, it's funny in, you know, the way that Webb constructs that photo. And then we look at Frank's and he's thinking about the same thing you know, how these icons kind of become meaningless or how they obscure the true meaning by literally having faces obscured. You know, that this idea of politics is, you know, becomes too big at certain points and erases our true selves. One of the things about the web pictures with which I had been somewhere between nearly totally unfamiliar and totally unfamiliar is how much more interested in art history, painting history, Webb is than Frank is. So that rodeo picture we just discussed, and we'll have it on manpodcast.com, of course, descends from a whole bunch of painterly flags. Think of Hassam and his paintings around World War One, which are jingoistic in extremis in the face of a war that was famously not about much. And so one of the places where Webb engages 19th century American art history, and I think has something to say about it that's different and very much his, is in a picture called Buffalo Garden City, Kansas, which shows Buffalo. How does Webb photograph Buffalo and how, and if you know why, why, is he setting himself apart from the Catlins and the Bierstadts and, and that ilk? Well, I think it's a great point to make. And again, it kind of goes back to these photographers' personalities, their point of view, and how they're taking these photos. So Frank, being interested in the now and the future, of course, isn't really thinking about past art historical precedent. You know, he it's there. He's, he's a brilliant artist, but it's not at the forefront in the same way it is with Webb, who is very consciously looking for kind of a proud past and lineage 
in the present. And Webb also being very, very close with Alfred Stieglitz had gone to so many exhibitions in that gallery, had photographed several of the installations, had photographed the artists that were part of the gallery. So he is very up on modern art also, but certainly his historical precedent. So when we look at this Buffalo picture, there's so much to unpack here. You know, the buffalo always was this symbol of the abundance of the land. And we usually get them in these epic landscapes that really speak to the West and the triumph of man over nature and manifest destiny and all of those big American ideals. But what Webb gives us after finally finding buffalo, he expected to see them, I think. Here's again how images become ideology and train us in certain ways, he expected to see these buffalo as he's walking across the United States. He didn't. He had to ask someone to bring him to a farm where they're kind of, you know, uh, bringing them back because they had been so decimated, as we all know. And Webb's photo of the buffalo is nothing like those historical precedent. They are running away from us. We don't really get a sense of the massive scale of these creatures. And one of the most telling things for me in this photograph is how low the horizon line is, which is something that none of these American painters would have done. And Webb really gives us the sense that this is the it's past, it's gone. We're never going to recover this. You know, even the buffalo are running away. They're, you know, it's gone. So it's kind of a lament for the things that he thought about America and are no longer present. Your mention of Stieglitz pointed out to me that there's another art historical wink here. So the buffalo are running away. They are they are a little bit blurry because they are running away. And as a result, the picture, Webb's picture looks vaguely pictorialist. And of course, pictorialism is, you know, things that are holding still but are blurry, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and so I suspect that, you know, Webb is smirking at, at that artificiality or that construction as well. One of the other things that's here, and, I, you know, I think it's inherent to their projects and their Guggenheim applications, is that we see lots and lots of signs of travel, gas stations, train stations, train cars, for you, is that simply a product of that's what Webb and Frank were doing? Or are they saying something about mobility, either in actuality or as a metaphor that is at the heart of or within their projects? They're definitely saying something. Both of them are appalled at the hierarchy that is America and the, that consumer culture, that conspicuous consumption is at the top. They both talk about it. Webb has a daily journal, which is a researcher's dream. And as Webb was walking and boating and biking across the country, you can really follow his thought process. Frank didn't have a daily journal, but he does have letters home and letters to different people. So we can kind of reconstruct what he was thinking. And both of them talk about consumption and commercialism and all of those things. And Webb, I think, phrases it beautifully. He says that what he notices most about America is the material prosperity and spiritual poverty of the country. And I think that those things in combination are just 
perfect. It's a perfect statement. And it's one that Frank shared. So I think seeing all these signs, it's just, you know, it's all about consuming or doing or, you know, having an experience that is also a method of consumption. And, you know, they're kind of horrified at all of this. And so they're both taking photos of signs and advertisements a lot. But it also shows, again, part of their personality and stylistic lineage. We can tie them both to Walker Evans, who mentored Frank, took him out on assignments with him, helped him write his first Guggenheim application. And Walker was also friends with Todd Webb. They were more contemporaries. So you can see that aspect of it, too. And that speaks to the the kind of state of American photography at that moment. Walker Evans ends up writing Guggenheim letters for each of them, actually, as you know, which I did not know until I read your essay. I don't want to represent that as my knowledge. Um, (laughs) You mentioned that both of them had an interest in words and signs. I think certainly Webb more than Frank, though. And Webb is funnier about it, like way funnier about it. So like Webb takes a picture in Garden City, Kansas, of what is either you know, probably a train depot, and it says Garden City, and you know there isn't a garden in sight, but there is, there are grain silos, so there are, there is this you know sly nod to nature, but only after only as it's being industrialized, right? Only as nature is being converted into a semi-industrial product. I thought that kind of the I mean, like some of these webs are just like laugh out loud funny. Where do you think his particular interest in words comes from? And do you think he was trying to be funny? He is definitely trying to be funny. Yeah, I thought Um, so too. (laughs) Again, I'll go back to Webb's journal because he tells us that everyone has their faults, that you can pick on everybody, but like, you know, that's not the right thing to do. It's best to just be gentle with them and maybe, you know, poke a little fun at them, but that's it, not be overtly critical. And so that's the tactic Webb takes. Whereas Frank, you know, the myth is that he's just grumpy and it's all critique and all of that. That's not really true. Frank himself says that in the images he chose for the Americans, there had to be an element of grace. There had to be an element of hope. And I think it's by putting them side by side that you start to see that more with Frank. So when he encountered something he didn't like, he didn't take the humor route like Webb did. He kind of critiqued it more because he hoped so much for something better. But Webb's words are, you know, a part of his work. And I think, again, thinking about their personalities, Webb likes words in a different way than Frank did. Webb kept a daily journal. He wrote letters constantly to people. He loved writing long captions for his photographs. Whereas Frank, one of his biggest complaints about the first edition of the Americans printed in France was way too many words. He truly believed that the photograph should stand on its own and shouldn't need anything, not not even necessarily a title. So it's just a different relationship to words that ends up playing out in their photographs themselves. One of the clearest parts of your catalog is that these guys are making pictures of men. Men, 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 men. There are so many photographs of men. 
did either photographer have a mindfulness about that or is there a cultural thing in 55 where like they couldn't be around? I mean, like, I don't, is it intentional? If it's not intentional, why dot, dot, dot. It's an interesting question and neither of them wrote about it specifically. So I'm going to try and read between the lines a little bit in order to answer that question. But I think it's, again, we can relate it to their personalities. Webb is, I, I call him my um, art historical crush because I never met him, but he seems like such a sweet and gentle and kind man. And it does not fit in the uh, his personality to kind of come up to a woman and put a camera in her face. He wouldn't have done that. In, in 55, you know, it certainly wouldn't have been an okay thing to do. And women wouldn't have necessarily been frequenting these bars in Kansas and New Mexico that all these tough farmers are in. And Frank, too, you know, he loved women. He says the sweetest things about June Leaf. He has a, you know, he's a bit of a marshmallow at the core. He collected heart-shaped rocks in Mabu. So there's a sensitivity there that we don't often give him credit for. And so there are photos of women, but they are, you know, more sensitive to just the social aspect of things. There's one photo that is in the show that didn't end up in the Americans by Frank taking a picture of a girl in New York City kind of through a pane of glass. And the look she's giving him, you know, is very unsure and very, you know, almost aggressive back at him. And I think it's notable that that did not end up in the catalog. Another element of your project that I think really came forward for me is that both Frank and Webb seem to have a real ambivalence about cities and suburbs, urbanity and suburbanity. You know, they were, you know, I don't think it's that they didn't know what to do with it. I just think they they weren't that interested in it, which I guess from the point of view of an artist in 1955, I could understand. They may have felt that American art had been overly urbanized since like, you know, O'Keeffe's radiator building or something, right? Or, you know, that period. I guess, one, do you, do, do you agree with that? And, and, and secondly, do you have a sense of why either of them might have been ambivalent about cities and, and suburbanity? I think it's interesting to know where they went, though it's not the end of the story. Webb's trip was basically east to west from New York to California, walking, getting on the Ohio River and boating, biking across Kansas because, you know, on this topic, he kind of found it a little too boring. And then ending up at O'Keefe's house where he kind of rests for a while. And Frank had no clear direction like that. It was a bunch of shorter, quicker trips kind of radiating out from New York or kind of going along a coast and then coming back. There wasn't that strong sense of a historical direction, the East-West, you know, growth of the nation that Webb had. But cities or suburbs, I, you know, I can only think of one thing that Webb wrote in his journal. He kind of was bored by a lot of suburbs because all he saw was that people were trying to keep up with the Joneses. So again, it was all about this conspicuous consumption and that no one had any real knowledge of their history. And he calls it local talk. There's too much local talk. And for 
Webb, I think that means no one knows really a lot about the outside world. And, you know, they haven't been anywhere or done anything. And he had a, as friendly and incredible as he was, he did have a hard time speaking to people at times. And so I think in cities, he had just a little bit of an easier time. Now, Frank doesn't write about any of this. So it's hard to imagine what he was thinking. But I don't know, it's all over the map, cities and suburbs. I, I think for me, Frank's clearest address of urbanity might also be his most direct address of United States art history. And that's an undated photograph where he's standing behind a bunch of men in suits wearing hats. They appear to be on a boat, but they might not be along the East River in New York. And it's a picture where he's standing behind them just as Charles Sheeler and Paul Strand position a camera behind, again, men in, in Manhattan the great pioneering avant-garde film, Frank has to be taking a shot at Manhattan. I mean, that, it's too direct to be accidental. And, man, you know, of course, Manhattan is Sheeler and Strand's, you know, great up years to Ralph Waldo Emerson and his idea that the great American thing and the great American space, the place where American culture should de define and extend itself, is in the interstitial space between urbanity and air quotes wilderness. And Sheeler and Strand are saying, okay, that's over. A hundred years of that and we're done with that. It is now the great American thing is industry and urbanity. And, mm -hmm. and, and Manhattan, especially the opening third or so of it, is a celebration of that. Whereas this Frank photograph is a rejection of it. And, you know, um, for Frank, it's just gray and dreary. All these people are standing there ignoring each other. He's just done with it. Like, I find that a really interesting art historical engagement, but maybe not a fascinating picture per se. Whereas my favorite art historical engagement of Webb's might be my favorite Webb picture. It's from 1955. It's called Oregon City, Oregon. Oregon City, as I'm sure Webb knew, is where the Oregon Trail ended, at least if you weren't going to California. Oregon City is today a suburb south of Portland, and Webb makes sure we see it. What do we see in that picture, and why is Webb making it, and how is he really using it? This is at a point in Webb's journey where he has changed his perspective. You know, he sets out looking for the real America. He sets out looking for the proud lineage that is reflected in the present. And by the time he, again, going east-west, reaches New Mexico, he's done with that. So by, you know, Oregon, he's like, he knows he's done. He's changed tactics. He's adjusted on the road. And he is, you know, he still is a historian at heart. He did so much research as he was preparing for this trip. He read diaries. He set his routes um, specifically in order to hit historical landmarks on that east to west path. He would have absolutely known the past of this city. And I think he's reflecting that here, giving us as much of a landscape as Webb and Frank will ever do on this particular Guggenheim trip. You see kind of the urban sprawl that is now this place. In the foreground, you get that one lone tree that definitely harkens back to art historical precedent. But European art, the tree of life. Yes, but even in front of that tree, you now have a car you know, symbol of consumerism and industry and things moving too quickly or moving quickly. So I think it is a layered image. And he's thinking about the past and how it's gone again, something like the Buffalo picture. But he would have known 
he would have known that history and it would have been at the forefront of his mind. And I should say also, it's interesting to think about Webb photographing the Western landscape, especially because it's Ansel Adams who teaches him how to photograph. So, you know, we have this quintessential Western landscape photographer in comparison to what Webb is doing here. This picture is a rejection of Ansel Adams's work. 100%. Yeah. And um, uh, Webb made a great joke about Ansel Adams. He said that uh, the only reason he could afford to take Ansel Adams' workshop is because he hadn't grown his beard yet. So... Uh, <laughs> yes, he hadn't become a stock character at that point, exactly. either, either as a, an image maker or as a human. Exactly. Not an icon yet. Yep. <laughs> The, the other art historical reference within this particular web picture is the series of photographs from what would come to be called Inspiration Point in Yosemite, where um, first Charles Lander Weed and then Carlton Watkins and, and everybody else make pictures, you know, looking down at Yosemite Valley from about 3000 feet above it with a lone, mostly naked pine tree, um, kind of pinning down the foreground, emphasizing the foreground of the picture and then the spectacular valley beyond and in webb's photograph which is really very funny it's bland boring deforested mostly suburbia behind that pine tree and in front of it is the car that enabled all of it it's acerbic and and and, and a road too i should add so it's really acerbic and also like a really effing well-composed historically rooted centuries and decades picture and it's, you know, it's, it's probably a good place for us to end because it's also the argument for, or an argument, a very good argument for the rediscovery and prioritization of Webb and his work. Lisa Volpe, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.